Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Earfirm Network. Bajedius. Macedonian Intermission. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. You might notice from the episode title, which I admittedly do not know what it is called yet at the time of recording, because we always pick that afterwards, but that we are not doing a Vegetius episode today. And the reason for that is entirely timing. Yeah. Uh, at the time of us recording this now, it is Boxing Day, which makes it the day after Christmas. Just, uh, we were originally supposed to record this on Monday, it's Saturday now, so you know, like three or four days before Christmas, and just, we didn't notice that we had a schedule for Christmas week until it was Christmas week, and there was just too many things going on, and we weren't able to get, we realized we wouldn't be able to do an episode up to the standards that we want to have. Yeah, I mean, I I know that my focus was divided, not just, of course, by the, the family things and everything, getting ready for, for the Christmas celebration, but also I had forgotten that I had a Assassin's, uh, like, tournament presentation that I was supposed to give to the Realm, and had blanked on that, so I was scrambling to make sure that that was good to go at the same time we were trying to get the notes for this ready to go, uh, and yeah, like Thumb said, it was just kind of a, a comedy of errors. Well, and then you add in my job changed up my schedule for Christmas week and, you know, COVID in general. And we really quickly, we can't do this, but we have, I don't think we've really missed an episode yet. It's been a while. It's been a while. And as much as possible, we want to try to keep that up. We cover Alexander a lot on this episode. He gets mentioned a lot. We have a big battle of his coming up in a soon episode. And when we were reading up on this, I was thinking about the fact that when we talk about Macedonian history, we kind of imagine it beginning when Alexander crosses the Hellespont into Persia and starts his really incredible conquest. And we don't talk about all of the stuff that happened before, uh, about his dad and all the really kind of amazing things that set up so Alexander could do his mad conquering. As we know, nothing in history exists in a vacuum. So we thought that it would be fun today to just cover that really quickly. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it, it, and uh, I mean, this is an area of of great interest for Thumbs. I know that he is, uh, you know, fascinated with this particular time period in this era of the world. So, again, when we were kind of like, "Oop, gonna have to do something different for this episode," he was right there with uh, with some good info on this. So, yeah, yeah. I hope you guys are are, are looking forward to this as much as we are. This is going to be uh, some good fun, but. First, we've got some, of course, some things to talk about. The, the The first thing I want to talk about, though, is I got an email a few days ago, and uh, it's from a, a broadcasting company down in Australia. 
and they were emailing me to inform that our show is in the top 200 shows in Australia. <laughs> That's this blows my mind. Like I, I just had a moment of silence when you told me this. Uh, I, I told my wife right before we started recording and she goes, okay, so this is going to sound really rude, but I don't mean it that way. But do Australians just not listen to a lot of podcasts or <laughs> no, I think they have exquisite taste. That's what I think. Yes. That's exactly what it is. They're, uh, aiming high. Yeah. Yeah. So our Australian listeners, thank you so much for, for liking us, uh, that much. That's, that's kind of incredible. I even had to check the email. I checked the email a couple of times to be like, okay, do they want me to send some money? Is this like a Nigerian prince sort of thing? And <laughs> no, it was legit. What a really specific Nigerian print scam that would be. Right, right. But I mean, you know, you got to be sophisticated with these things. It's the 21st century. It was my first thought, too. No, I, I completely agree with you there. Yeah, I, like I say, like I was, I was like, what do they want from me? That, and there was, there was nothing. There was nothing. They weren't asking anything from me in the email. They were like, hey, we just was, well, wanted to let you know that you're in the top 200 in Australia. Good job. <laughs> thank, uh, thank it you. is... One of those things where friends and family learned that I'm making podcasts, and especially in the early days, because I, I once read somewhere that uh, making a podcast was the late millennial equivalent of, hey, we should start a band. Yeah, I, I saw that too, and I felt very, very targeted with that. <laughs> yeah, as someone who has been in both a band and a made a podcast now, it really was just talking about you. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> So, you know, I had to tell friends and family that I was doing this, and they'd be like, oh, that's nice. Not, like, intending to be insulting, but they're like, oh, we'll see if this lasts. And then the the piece that gets people to pay attention when I say that I do things like this is when I'm like, oh, yeah, we have listeners on five continents yeah. or something like that. Like, So, you know, we're in the top 200 in Australia is, like, the weirdest brag that I'm going to brag to so many people about. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I've, I've been telling, like, we were doing all of our calls on Christmas, and I was like, oh, that's nice, and how are the kids? Oh, that's that's swell, and oh, your grandparents are doing well, that's good, that's good. Top 200 in Australia, by the way. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it feels pretty good. So, thank you, thank you again, Australians. That's, uh, that's pretty swell. I'm, I'm, glad that, uh, I'm glad that you like us. That's cool. And then the other thing is, of course, I had, I've been promising for a while that there's going to be a video, like a video for these 12 shots. And now that winter has come and the lightsabers are here, that promise will be made a reality very soon. Once we actually get a good snow that I can go out and get a good video for you guys, because I'm sure you don't just want to see the bleh brown of the uh, Montana winter when there's not a good snowfall. So we're waiting yeah, for Yeah, it is not a pretty place during the day sometimes. <laughs> yeah. So in but uh, I've been practicing with the lightsabers to make sure I don't look like a total doofus uh, using something that I'm unfamiliar with in my hand for the videos and I've been noticing that it's been very much helping me perfect my forms because there's a lot of little details, a lot of little motions that you don't necessarily notice with a proper blade or any sort of training blade. But when you light that puppy up from the inside, you can see a lot more. So if any of you have been considering getting a lightsaber, even just as like a, a collectible or, or something to have around, I would highly recommend using it to, to do sword forms with because it's been really helping me. Also, it just feels cool. It does. It does. But yeah, it's the thing you don't think about because you're like, you get the lightsaber and you're playing with it. And as you're spinning it around at night and you can kind of follow where the light is, just, just how the brain works. Mm -hmm. uh, you're like, oh, this is almost like poi spinning or whatever. And then you later realize that, oh man, this isn't just pretty. There is uh, practical uses for it as well that I yeah. never, never would have thought of. 
Nope. And like I said, when I first got them, I, I wanted to do the video with them because I thought that it would demonstrate the motions to the audience much better, but I hadn't considered it necessarily being a, a great aid to my own practice. So uh, unintentional good things happening and something I would recommend for anybody who's looking into that or can afford one because they're pretty sweet. Yeah, definitely. If you're going to do it for these, you probably want one of the short saber blades. Yeah. Because it turns out lightsabers are really weirdly long. So for one-handed stuff, like, as soon as I was holding a lightsaber, I understood why Luke fought two-handed so much. And uh, the other thing is those shorter ones, like the, with the, what they're called as Shoto sabers, at least within the Jedi lore. I know we talked about that for the Jedi episode. The nice thing about those is you can use them indoors without worrying about wrecking your wife's tchotchka collection. I know that sounds strangely specific, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> uh, one of your apprentices, Turkey Feathers, anytime he used to come over for game, we would like hide anything that was kind of sword-like, uh -huh. because he will pick it up and swing it, and he well, never broke anything at the house, but he came real close. Sure. Many times. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I've been like, okay, the out, the big ones are for outdoors. That's it. I can use the little one inside because it's more like my normal training blade. I, I know the length, but that those bigger ones are just slightly longer than most of the, the weapons I use. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. So lightsabers are cool. Get one. On my end, I only have two short things. Uh, I mentioned, I think it was last episode, might've been episode before. Time is a mystery to me anymore, but I had mentioned that I was making a bunch of helmets uh, mostly for Christmas, stuff like that. But I did the counting after, because I just finished up. I'm like working on the last one. I was working on it yesterday. In the last month and a half, I think I did five or six helmets and four or five murder masks. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and actually, just as the day that we're recording today, I was talking with people about making a skull mask which is something that you and I have been talking about making you so you can live out more of your 40k Belagarth fantasies. Yeah, I, I got a thing for chaplains. So That's uh, the word. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm digging the idea of having... Because like, the, the armor he made me looks vaguely Space Marine. Like I wouldn't be able to cosplay as a Space Marine, but like as armor looks in Belagarth, it looks rather Space Marine-y. The then next one is going to be closer too, I promise you. Yeah, and then on, on top of that... Um, if you, if we add the, the skull mask to it, I'm starting to really, really pick up those Dark Lord of Ibia, Stygia vibes. <laughs> I couldn't remember that it was a chaplain. Uh, when, so I was looking for pictures as references cause I knew you wanted a skull mask and just was like space Marine pastor. Nope. That's not right. Space Marine <laughs> pastor. <laughs> I like that librarian nope that's not right either but at least that's a thing um no i would i would dig being a librarian too but but they don't really wear a specialized helmet they got that that hood yeah and also i think that's a bof thing yeah i mean i occasionally wear i, I like before i became religious about wearing a helm on the field i would occasionally wear a hood on the field but a helm protects your head just so much better than a hood does yeah i've got front tooth problems of my fake tooth broke off we've talked about it before on this and we're talking about uh, i've been talking with my dentist about a solution and he's like it should be fine just don't get punched in the face 
And yeah. my thought was like, one, I don't want to ha- that to happen anyways. And two, looks like I'm wearing a helmet for every day of Belagarth for the rest of my career after this. And it's it's really just a good idea if you if you value your 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 brain cells face. and all and your face, like all the, the bits being where they are and remaining there. Um, yeah, a helm's a good idea. It's a good idea. I don't get. I've never gotten many black eyes, but I've never gotten one while wearing a helm. So let that you know say what it does yeah i mean like i've i've taken a lot of cracks to the head from like a band shop pole on a spear and it hurts when you don't have a helm on i mean like I've, I've split my head open on them before having a helm on you're like oh i felt an impact on my head you're like it hurts but i'm not mad at you in the same way <laughs> right right yeah i don't have to sit there and check myself to see if i'm bleeding um yeah so helms are great helms are great uh, and then my last thing, and this is very short because I literally haven't had a chance to play it yet. Uh, I picked up on sale yesterday Immortals Phoenix Rising, Ooh. which relates vaguely to what we're talking about because it's kind of an open world Breath of the Wild Assassin's Creed style game taking place in ancient Greece with, I say ancient Greece, I really mean mythical Greece, you know monsters and it was originally called i think gods and monsters but monster energy drink of all people had problems with that huh so they changed (laughs) it to an admittedly really terrible name of immortals phoenix rising and phoenix is spelled like f-e-n-y-x or something like the most like 90s radical way you could possibly spell phoenix I hope that doesn't hinder them, because that, I mean, like, the other the other name, I would have been likely to pick it up, but the way it, like, when you described it to me, I'm like, that sounds awesome. But, like, when I hear the name of it, I'm like, ooh. Yeah, uh, I looked it up because it was on sale, and I'm like, well, what is this? And then read some reviews, and it was like, the underrated gem of 2020. So, it didn't do them any favors, at the least. I mean, I don't know. I haven't played the game yet. Uh, we don't have reliable or any Wi-Fi at the house that I'm living in now yet, because it turns out getting someone to come into your house to set up an internet during COVID is a nightmare. What? Um, Yeah, I know, right? Uh, But as soon as I get that downloaded and tried out a little bit, I will let you guys know what I think of it. And we're looking forward to that. But uh, that's what I got. I think uh, you ready to jump into some meat and or potatoes? Uh, Yes, sir. I think it's about time we talk about the, the pretext of Alexander the Great. Beyond just the different formatting of this episode, if this episode sounds a little different to you, it is because I took the notes, and usually the illustrious Yaga Malark here does all of the note-taking, and most of our work goes off of his structure, and he was a much better student than I was. (laughs) (laughs) I have many wonderful talents, and I am an absolute font of interesting information, but I have never been very good at the note-taking, so this was a fun experiment for me. And while I, I appreciate uh, the uh, the reprieve uh, for the episode of, of not having to do it, yeah, I'm 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 come from a historian's background in religious studies, so yeah, we're our, our structure is going to be a little different. Yes, I look at things first from a storytelling perspective, which is why I do what I do. I am the talky talk guy. You are the no things guy. 
Yeah. Um, and then to add on top of that, beyond just the fact that I automatically was looking for like what's the most interesting story part of this, is we ha- we've mentioned before the lack of primary sources, and it is so bad in this era. It's so interesting in this era because we know more about this era than we do at any point before this, but we have almost no primary sources left. Like, literally, the only primary source we have from the era of Alexander, which is, you know, shortly after this, like, five years after this, is a, like, single-sentence documentation on a temple, like, dedication. Basically, Alexander was here. Yeah. And, of course, he he put his name on a, do- a dozen or more cities, too. Yes. We, we have all sorts of stuff, but of, we don't have the general's writing we don't have alexander basically brought a press corps with him which was another kind of first look at these things that i'm doing look how amazing it is we don't have any of those we have people who are like oh well i have ptolemy's journal and these press releases and so i've put together his thing but that's you know a century later two centuries later or people who weren't there so a lot of these things between my just automatic interest in the sensational and lack of primary sources, this is a really interesting time in history to talk about. I would imagine that the majority of the primary sources for this were burned with the Library of Alexandria. I know. 2,000 years later and I'm still sad. I know. I always cringe every time I think about it, too. I, Oh, goodness. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I would imagine that that's one of the reasons we don't have it. Also, to my knowledge, and I, and I think to uh, at least correct me if I'm wrong, but I, the reason we're not doing a book by Alexander, because we absolutely would if it existed, but I'm, I'm pretty sure he didn't write a book nope. on any of this. Not that I'm aware of. Alexander wasn't much of a scholar. He read, like, he read, uh, and there was a book, it might have even been Herodotus as his history, so it might have been Aristotle, that he kept, like, under his pillow at night. But for the most part, he was too busy... Being awesome? Cutting people's heads off. <laughs> <laughs> Raging alcoholism in a god complex. You know, all the, the things that made him interesting kept him from sitting down to write too much. The rock star of BCE. Yeah, 100%. But, of course, because he's such a fascinating figure, it's a good uh, a good time and period to, his, uh, to look at. Again, when Thumb suggested this, it was like, you know what, that's a good point. We always talk about Alexander's exploits. We always talk about the cool things that he is said to have done. But, uh, of course, history does not occur in a vacuum. And so it, it, I think it'll be... I think this will be a neat little study, and hopefully it'll be useful to y'all to kind of understand uh, what era and what area Alexander was coming from. Well, and I'm a eternally interested in what happened before that you know right alexander did this a bit what happened right before that or you know the greco-persian wars or uh go back even farther i mean this is why this era of history is so interesting to me because i was reading about medieval times went, well what happened before that you know i got to the akkadian empire and went, well what happened before that and at that point you're looking at people without languages like the indus valley civilization and that's there's a lot of guesswork at that point. Right. I mean, we have to rely on, we're mostly on archaeology for anything that we know about that. But this is that weird point where we have almost nothing but a whole lot at the same time. Right. A lot of legend uh, to, to parse the truth from. 
But uh, I, I guess before we get into this, though, because uh, I, I, I feel like we're about to really dig into these meat and potatoes, I had meant to tell you a truly terrible joke that I came up with during the introduction. You warned me about this, and I am just, like, already, like, tense. Like, how? <laughs> I did. So I was wondering, if you, can I tell it right now? Hopefully our, our, our people, our, our, our folks won't mind a little interlude. Have at it, my dude. <laughs> my terrible joke. I came up with this. Okay. Um, what is the difference between a classic cellist... And an insult. What? One syllable. Yo-Yo Ma and Yo Mama. Oh my god. Oh my god, Mark. <laughs> uh, I told you it was terrible. <laughs> I'm going to have to tell that to my wife. She's going to love it so much. Why? Please do. Why Please does do. everyone I know love puns so much? Oh... Uh. For Christmas, yeah. for a couple friends, I ran a one-shot tabletop game in a game called the Get the Dadlands, the Dadlands. which is uh, a post-apocalyptic dad adventure, uh, and it's pretty so much like the the Badlands, but for but dads. the Dadlands, yes. Mm. Uh, but it's pretty much just dad joke after dad joke, and I, I really quickly had the dawning horror of realizing that I am actually very good at dad jokes for Uh-oh. someone who hates puns as much as I do. <laughs> but getting to other parts of dads let's uh talk about philip the barbarian and or philip that was a great transition right? that was I'm fantastic so uh, and macedonia uh real quick i have heard it as both macedonia and macedonia i do not know which one is correct because and macedonia and macedonia i i generally use macedonia but i've heard experts argue over this so you know Forgive me if it sounds wrong to you. It is hard enough to guess, you know, how names were pronounced in modern languages, let alone... Dead ones. Ancient Greek that probably got translated to Latin, that probably got translated to whatever. Macedonia itself is worth talking about really quickly, because whether it counts as Greece or not is really kind of confusing. Uh, It was, according to Herodotus, who's, you know, father of history reason why we know the Battle of Thermopylae. It was founded in 808 BC by Carinus. Again, I'm guessing on that name as well. Uh, and Herodotus claimed that their king was a descendant of Heracles. This was pretty common at this time in, uh, in a lot of cultures, kind of throughout history, throughout the Norse cultures, the Celtic cultures, Greeks, Egyptians. It was extremely common for folks to claim some sort of divine descent in order to justify their claim to the throne. And it varied from culture to culture. For the Egyptians, the pharaoh was kind of like a god in his own right. Mm-hmm. For the Persians, they weren't a god, but they might be kind of a demigod. The Greeks that had such detailed stories about their own gods and demigods didn't go quite that far. But if you could be like, oh, well, you know, my great-great-granddaddy was Heracles, that also meant that your great-great-great-granddaddy was Zeus. Right. Uh, so you could make a whole lot of claims on that. And they had such a such a rich mythic history that it was really easy to find someone that was supposed to be from your city that you could claim credit to. And again, this was a, a way of aggrandizing the self. I know in, in previous episodes we've talked about the fact that a lot of the writings, for instance, ascribed to Homer were likely not written by Homer, but they were using his name as a nom de plume 
while they uh, to, to gain some sort of notoriety in order to get their story circulated. And this was, again, very common up until really the most current of academic eras. Just to see if I even have this right, isn't Homer, like, isn't there actual debate of whether Homer existed or is that a different Greek philosopher? Nope, that's, and, and that's the thing too, is like whether or not he actually existed, much like, you know, Socrates, you know, whether or not Socrates was a real person or whether or not he was a, a fiction of Plato's in order to like engage with him in allegory, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to tell when you look back in history, an argument can be made both ways. Well, and it's kind of similar to, we talked about this with Vegetius of we think it comes from this era but it could have been made up a couple of generations later being like no look i found this old text that argued my point you know it's interesting to me that future generations will not have that problem with us because everything we do is like date stamped so like every every show that comes out every writing that happens like everything is date stamped so they're going to know ex like the like the date time and second that like things occurred either that or there's going to be a huge blackout period here in this point in history because everything is digital at this point. That's a good point. If a solar flare knocks us out, then, then yeah. I mean, people are still reading, but writing books, but I think we're getting off topic. A little yeah. Bit. <laughs> us never. Uh, never. Anyways, so Macedonia was nominally Greek to the point that it comes up in almost every Greek thing. They uh, were involved in the Greco-Persian wars that Herodotus was telling us about, they actually were on the side of Persia. So I'm going to try not to use 300 as a reference too often because it is wildly ahistorical. Right. But, you know, think of Xerxes, think of the Battle of Thermopylae. Uh, large parts of Greece were actually on the side of Persia because Persia showed up and said, you know, give us land and water and work for us. We're the largest empire the world has ever seen. And many places like Macedonia went, that sounds like a great idea. I don't want to fight that guy. Macedonia was interesting because usually the Persians would install what is called a satrap. They're client kings, for lack of a better choice. They are a king or a kind of regional governor that Persia chose that would lead Egypt. So you're like, you know, I'm the satrap of Egypt, kind of the king of Egypt, but I work directly for the the king of kings, you know, right. Xerxes, Darius, whoever. So like a regional governor, would that be another good way to say it? Yes. Macedonia never even got that far. They were like, all right, Aww. we work for you. And they're like, sure, whatever. Okay, keep your king. Just give us some money, whatever. And they really played both sides of the Greco-Persian Wars. Uh, the king during this time is the first of three people named Alexander that are going to come up in this story. Just for reference, Alexander the Great is the third one. Yes, Alexander the Third. So this is Alexander the First. His, I th I've heard that he was the one that surrendered to Persia, and I've heard that his father was the one. So I am not 100% sure. I think that it was his father that was like, yeah, sure, Persia, that sounds great. Alexander is listed by Herodotus as supplying troops for the Persians for that war, but he also is on record as giving warning to the resistance you know athens sparta i don't think they really had a name just what we think of as greece and actually when persia left after what is that the battle of plataea was their big, last big one i think i think so yeah alexander regained control like uh basically seceded from the persian empire because they were right on the edge of the persian area of control so if somebody was going to break away, it was probably going to be them. Mm -hmm. 
to really drive home that they were nominally Greek, uh, Alexander had to prove that he was of Greek descent so he would be allowed to compete in the Olympics. <laughs> and that's that's so strange because like most of us in the modern age uh, Macedonia and Greece are kind of synonymous you know they're both on the Peloponnesian Peninsula a lot of a lot of their history is very shared and so from our perspective this many years later we are like I feel like we often look back and we're like oh they're basically the same thing but obviously they weren't because you know they, they had to prove their lineage here mm-hmm. and then they kind of had to prove their lineage Always. For the next two centuries, basically, uh, they are involved in almost every major Greek war. They go to war with Sparta. They go to war with Athens. They never do very well. They're always just kind of there. You know, like, oh, we sent some troops. Um, They have uh, a very rigid class system, and that means that they have just excellent... Uh, for lack of better terms, knights, kind of heavy armored horsemen. And, and, you know, at this time, of course, uh, when we think of cavalry, we think of people going into the army being issued a horse or something along those lines. But the reason that cavalry existed at this time was usually because there was some sort of aristocratic caste that could afford to breed and take care of horses. So if you had a horse, it was because you brought it. And so, you know, like Thumbs was saying, they had a pretty decent cavalry, but without without that infantry to support them, you kind of have a lackluster army there. Uh, their infantry was so bad that a later Greek writing during Roman times claimed that Philip was the first uh, Macedonian king to make his troops, like, line up in formation. Wow. Now, that is almost certainly untrue. Like, there's no way that they were involved in Greek wars for 200 years and never decided to try a phalanx before this. But the fact that people were talking that kind of uh, that kind of mad smack talk... That is some heavy smack right there. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly. So it really puts you in the point of where they are. Which brings us to roughly 382 BC, where Philip II of Macedon is born. The Greco-Persian Wars that we were talking about at the beginning of this took place from 498 to sometime in 450. So this is about 150 to 200 years after, like, the Battle of Thermopylae. Just to to put us in position. In 370 BC, when Philip is 12, Alexander II of Macedon takes the throne and he decides to engage with war with Thessaly. Thessaly isn't a huge Greek city, but, I mean, they were in a better position than Macedonia for most of always. Uh, And Thessaly goes to help for Thebes, who is kind of one of the big three of uh, Greek cities. It was kind of Athens, Sparta, and Thebes. Yeah. And Thebes shows up and just wrecks Macedonia's day. Which, like you said uh, before, with their... With their bad military history, this isn't all all that surprising. And Thebes is on the rise at this point. We'll talk about that in just a second. After this war is lost, in a really common move of ancient times, royal hostages are sent to Thebes, where, including Philip, who will spend the next few years living and working in Thebes. With royal hostages the the first thing i always think of is funny because i never watched the show and i can never remember the name but there is a character in game of thrones that is theon you're thinking of theon who is staying with the house of stark 
Yeah, Greyjoy, that's the one it is. It was basically, one, it was kind of a punishment, like, no, no, no. Uh, you're not, you're going to stop and you're going to stop because I have control of your son or your brother or often both. But these people would generally be raised in pretty good conditions because they were still royalty. So, uh, Philip was hanging out with, I didn't get this guy's name down because again, I'm not great at note taking and it's really hard to pronounce Greek names, Mm -hmm. but a pretty high-ranking Theban who was a major supporter of the Theban group called the Sacred Band. The Sacred Band is, in a lot of ways, why Thebes was the the number one top dog city at this point in Greek history. The Sacred Band was a group of 300 homosexual lovers that operated as crack troops of Greece, of Thebes. They were originally... the. Uh, it gets. I mentioned that they're all supposed to be lovers because it gets mentioned literally every time the sacred band comes up. Hmm. But um, the idea was, you know, we've heard about this about the Greeks before, that if you're a lot less likely to run away if your lover is next to you on the battlefield. Right. Um, originally, the sacred band was put forward, you know, like, let's have three or four newbies and then we'll put the sacred band member and then three or four more newbies and then we'll put the sacred band member. And they were later swapped out to much more like crack troops like all right here's our newbies over here and here is our sacred band that's going to hit exactly where we need them to they were at the time probably the best military organization in all of greece with only 300 members that's very impressive Mm -hmm. now i mean they would always be like part of an army but sure it's their little phalanx and then the little phalanx next to them and Yada, yada, yada. Uh, and Philip is raised watching them, and he actually watches them just smash Sparta. We we always think of Sparta as, like, the end-all, be-all of Greek warfare, and the Battle of Thermopylae has a lot to answer for in that respect. And for and for a lot of Greek history, it was true. Like, Sparta was the, the dominant in the ground warfare, and Athens was dominant at naval warfare. So there's there's a reason we have that impression. A big part of why that was is Sparta was one of the first Greek cities to have a dedicated military force that was only there for military purposes. Like, a lot of times, the hoplites from the other Greek cities were... I'm going to reference 300 again. It'll be the last time. I apologize. Uh, (laughs) I don't believe you. They have that scene where he's like, what do you do? And he's like, I'm a potter. What do you do? I'm a... I don't remember what the... I haven't watched that movie since high school. And, uh, all the Spartans. Spartans, what is your profession? And they don't answer him. They just go, <clears throat> uh, Sparta had a dedicated military force. I mean, they also had conscripts. While most of Greece was a very ad hoc affair in a lot of the early Greek warfare. Or at least this is the one of the more current views of how Greek warfare works. If you follow history... Every 50 to 100 years, we tweak how we think things went. But by this point, most of the Greek city-states had dedicated military professionals, the the sacred band being kind of an example, and they utterly smash Sparta and kind of permanently remove Sparta as a major military power. They, they permanently end that idea that Spartans were a class above the other Greek city-states when it comes to warfare. 
Now this this little tenure that that Philip has as a royal hostage, we were talking about it before the show. This might actually be a fun mechanic to work into like a, the community of wargaming. Basically, do a, an offer officer exchange program where it's again you're not necessarily taking hostages because that's illegal, but more more along the lines of of sending pl people places to like do yeah just an exchange to learn and to kind of expand knowledge by by sharing it in that kind of way. Uh, we were especially thinking because we got way too deep into how this idea would work, and it sounds so much fun. If if this is if you're in a place where you can go to an event every couple of weeks, obviously this is during the not COVID times. Right. Um, if you're in one of those places that you can go to an event every other weekend, if you want to convince another unit to trade, one of you goes over there, another one of them goes over here, whoever that is, and spend like a year working with that other unit, knowing that you're going to go back. I think it would be a really interesting way of looking at this because what would you learn? And especially if you went to a unit that was very different than your unit, like when we were talking about this, like, oh, it'd be pretty easy to get like EBF and BOF, like two members of the triad to swap, sister units. But you would probably learn more if it was EBF and... Oh, I don't know. What's that... Or Urukai Urukai would be a great one, or that really big unit that you were uh, hanging out with in Tennessee for a while. Ravnus. Ravnus would be another good thing like that. Like, and see what the two different groups would learn from each other. And yeah, have it be a, a far more amicable affair than the royal hostage thing, but it would be a, a cool mechanic. Yeah, uh, so we, we were just uh, a little little aside there. We were just kind of thinking that might be cool. Mm -hmm. Philip spends about three years... I believe there, uh, maybe a little longer, but in 359, when Philip is almost 30, he's like, no, he's like uh, 19 at that point. Sorry, my mistake. Philip is named the Regent of Macedonia to look after his uh, the, the country until his nephew, the son of Alexander II, is ready to take the throne. And like often happens when a regent is named... That doesn't happen, and it takes Philip less than a year to replace his nephew. Denethor? I did not hear, or I did not read whether the nephew died or not. A lot of times there was like, oh, what a mis unfortunate mistake accident. He just happened to fall on this knife. Repeatedly. Now I am king. He wanted that to happen. Although, also other times they were like, no, he's three. I'm just going to be king. Try and stop me. <laughs> or, you know, a, a perfectly reasonable thing would happen, like cholera. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, there, there were a lot of reasons to, le you know, legitimately die at this period in history. And Philip immediately starts taking everything he learned in Thebes and just revitalizing the Macedonian army into what will become the greatest army the world had ever seen up until this point. And, and revolutionizing the way that warfare would be done for for the next foreseeable future. The, the biggest thing he did, and this is one that I really, like, when I was reading about this, I was this was the moment that I went, we have to talk about this. Like, we have to talk about what Philip was doing specifically. He created a new troop type, the Phalangite. Uh, I am almost certainly not pronouncing that correctly, and I apologize. But it, uh, those of you who are uh, etymologists will, realize, will see that it's a, the same base word as phalanx. 
Now, the Macedonian phalanx is considered different from the Greek phalanx because of this. Uh, to real quick, I'm sure you know what a hoplite is, but just to go over to make sure we're in the right spot, hoplites wore heavy armor, they had a big shield, and they had a one-handed spear that at this point in history was about 10 feet long, I think. You may not reference 300, but I will here. Think of the, the kits that the Spartans were using in 300. That's a hoplite. Probably more armor than that. But, uh, again, that's also heavily debated whether... Because a lot of depictions of them in art is nude, but they're like, are they heroically nude? Or did they fight like that? Or did some of them fight like that? But that's a whole that's a whole different thing. It is what won them the Greco-Persian Wars because they're Persian uh, the Greco-Persian Wars, because the hoplite is extremely effective against archery. And cav. And cavalry. Th now, as Philip was watching the Theban hoplites, and the Thebans had slightly revolutionized the hoplite phalanx by uh, increasing how many ranks deep they were. So we've talked about like front rank, second rank, back rank. Uh, the average hoplite phalanx was like, five ranks deep originally and the Thebans one of the things they did was make their army much it, it wasn't nearly as wide but it was like 50 ranks deep mm. it's just insane which meant that it was just no one could eat through their like in the grind there was just always another person there there was no good way to really take it out until Philip who sets up his men instead of with a bit uh, one-handed spear he sets them up with a spear known as the sarissa the sarissa is a two-handed spear much more similar to what we use in belagarth except it's 30 feet long that's over twice the the average length of one of the spears i see in in physical fighting that's th over three times my longest spear is 10 feet long my average spear, the most common spear you see out on the field, hangs out at about 8 feet. The physical wargaming, somewhere between 6 to 10 feet, is the standard. These were at 30. He 30 feet is a long spear. He also... I, I actually spent like the next two days after reading that trying to figure out how I could make a 30-foot spear. <laughs> it would only be effective in this setup, though. And also, unfortunately, there's just no way to transport it. Because the only way I could think of is it would be one that you could break down, but you can't use cores that break down in Belagarth. Mm. It all has to be one piece. So if you know you can unscrew it into multiple pieces, it's not going to work. Also, as you said, it would only be effective, but it was insanely effective against the Hoplites. He also reduced almost all of their armor because Greeks never were that into archery in the first place, so uh, the armor wasn't as necessary for them. And he changed the shield from one that you held in your hand to almost more like a buckler that you had on your arm. Like a, a bigger buckler, but still a buckler. Um, it is very similar to a lot of combat styles that I see on the field of Belagarth. And again, we we need to stress how revolutionary this was, because again, these these spears were much longer than their counterparts. Their these formations were far more flexible than, like he was saying, that that large Theban uh, conglomerate. And and this phalanx, this style of phalanx, would be one of the top forms of military combat up until the Roman legion 
went through another revolution. Uh, yeah, this style was just made to beat other phalanxes because the part of the effectiveness of the phalanx was the reach. But you were stabbing the first two or three rows before they came even close to being able to hit you. So, I mean, that's part of the reason why they didn't have the armor as much because you didn't need it. Right. This would go on until Rome, as you said. And honestly, Rome even kind of started with the phalanx and fought this and went, oh man, we need to change up the game. They are better at this than we are. They've been practicing way longer. We got to change that meta. And revolutionized warfare again. But that is hundreds of years from now. Now, we should definitely say this unit is not invincible. There is a battle that comes up in Alexander's time where there is a hole between these two groups of the units and some cavalry gets through and they almost destroyed this unit because it couldn't turn fast enough. I mean, you imagine trying to turn. These groups were either 10 by 10 soldiers or 16 by 16, like rows and ranks. Imagine trying to turn all of those with a 30-foot spear. Downright impossible to do quickly. But luckily, there, you know, Alexander still had some traditional hoplite phalanxes with him that took on that cavalry and saved them. These, but these were just insanely capable defensive things, because if they could just hang out there and you had to come in on them, it, it wasn't happening. You were just not winning that fight. So Philip builds an entire army kind of based on this principle. Yeah. And, you know, let's set up our infantry that's set up on that, and then we'll do our cavalry doing our attack. And that's how Alexander won almost every battle we're going to read about. Ever. Like, there's variety, but for the most part, that comes up. If it ain't broke. Don't try and fix it. Uh, in 357, Philip marries Olympias of Melosia, and their Ooh. son Alexander III, a.k.a. Alexander the Great, was born in the following year, 356. At this point, he was only Alexander the Infant. However. Yes. Alexander is raised being told that he descends from demigods on both sides, uh, Heracles on his father's side, as we mentioned before, and Achilles on his mother's side. Now, when it comes to the Greek heroes, that's the top two, or at least two out of the top three, like, depending on who, what you think of Perseus, for the most part. And I, and I get this in some way, like, because, you know, every Russian kid is told that they descend from Anastasia. Every, everybody, every Russian kid is like, you know, our family is the one that made it out and we were the ones descended. Like every, every Russian kid I've met mm -hmm. <laughs> apparently descends from Anastasia. And so again, like this is, this is, you know, in some way it was his parents just kind of telling him this so that he, he felt good about his heritage and all that sort of thing. But could you imagine the ego that this guy must have had honestly thinking that he was descended from these two mythological figures? I mean, at the end... It kind of seems like what killed him was raging alcoholism and a god complex, which is just a horrible combination. Yeah. So, yeah, I can only imagine. And from everything we could tell, Alexander pretty much wanted to be a Homeric hero. He was at the front of the charge, like, all the time. Probably because he, you know, would read about, oh, Heracles did this and you descended from him. And, and any of this it is he wanted to be the hero of myth and he succeeded just kind of a horrifying myth but first he had to get there yes uh real quick she's only going to come up briefly in our story but i do want to talk a little bit about olympias of melosia because she is one of the most interesting women in world history Melosia was a small 
country, kingdom, land. Country's not quite an accurate term for when you're talking about that era of history, but it's the closest we kind of have. If the Greeks thought the Macedonians were barbarians, the Macedonians thought the Molosians were barbarians. So they were the barbarians, barbarians, and she gets this wonderful kind of legend built up around her. She is a rabid devotee of the cult of Dionysus, who worships snakes. And to this day, people are talking about how she slept in a bed with snakes. She kept snakes in her bed while she slept. That would make for a great metal album cover, I just gotta say. I'm pretty sure it already is a metal album cover. And it was Uh, almost certainly set up to make her sound like a barbarian or a villainous or... People did not like her. She didn't like them either, to be fair. But (laughs) um, unfortunately, or fortunately, it kind of backfired because it makes her sound like the coolest person in this story. In this story of cool, weird, angry, violent people, she is one of the most interesting, cool, angry, weird, violent people. Uh, She hated her husband. She could not stand Philip, who was also very rare for this era, uh, polygamous. He had more than one wife when monogamy was pretty common in this part of the world. Uh, But she was just devoted to Alexander and devoted to his children. It didn't go great for his children because they died very young, but she fought rapidly. No one could really stop her. And when Alexander was off conquering, she ended up just looking after uh, Macedonia. She was the de facto ruler of the most powerful empire in the world, very briefly. So she was competent, at the very least. She was competent, and she was dangerous, and a lot of people died because they underestimated her. So I I had to mention her because, as I said, uh, I look at this from the storyteller perspective, she's the person who I want the biography of. I'd read it. Yeah, 100%. Philip spends the next few decades conquering most of Greece. He ends up forming what is called the League of Corinth, And it was basically being like, oh no, this isn't the Macedonian Empire. We're a league. We're getting together. We're going to fight Persia together. But I'm in charge. But it's a league. It's a league. You know, because saying I conquered Greece is just going to piss off the Greeks. Like, if we have learned anything from, at this point, the 500,000 years of Greek history, you know, if we're counting, like, the, Age of myth. the Bronze Age Greeks as well, uh, Greeks really don't like someone else being in charge. Most people don't, but yeah, the Greeks seem to have an issue with it. <laughs> they were real picky about this. But, you know, if they were, oh, there's a league, we're all working together. Um, notably, the only major Greek state, or city, city-state, that doesn't join during this time is Sparta. And Philip actually sends a message to Sparta, and it's worth looking up your time to... That didn't make any sense, I'm sorry. It is worth your time to look up what he writes, just because it sounds cool. It sounds like something Sauron is writing in Lord of the Rings. But it's basically, you know, if if we go up against you, if we decide to take over, we will wreck you. We will burn your lands and raise your city and yada, yada, yada. And the Spartans just reply with, if that takes that takes huevos right there that's moxie right there that's the definition of moxie and as we said sparta is no longer the big dog of greece they are as good maybe a little worse than many of the cities 
or maybe a little better, than many of the cities that he has conquered without much difficulty. So he he would have won. It wouldn't have been a contest. But Philip is, I don't know, so impressed by their moxie that he just lets them go. Neither Philip nor Alexander will ever attempt to conquer Sparta. Apparently, all you had to do was just have a clever comeback. <laughs> that was the, the other people tried to go to battle with them, but clever comeback, that was, that was the, the, the ticket right there. Now, he is clearly setting up that, to invade Persia. As I said, the League of Corinth was specifically put together with the idea of we are going to take over Persia, we are going to assemble. We're, uh, Persia had been... Uh, the Ro- For the Romans, just a slight, slight uh, example thing here. For Romans, the ultimate enemy was the Celts. No matter who else they fought, the Celts was like the big person for them. For the Greeks, it was the Persians. Now, we were talking about them forming this league, and you, we, we've talked about the Spartans. Thebes. What happened in Thebes? Thebes ends up getting taken over, and uh, during this time, Alexander just... Because uh, Alexander is at old enough at this point that he is heading up some of the armies. He's not like, you know, second in command, but he is a pretty high ranking person. And he basically personally destroys the sacred band that we were mentioning before. Thebes is just smashed. Now, do you think that this was like a, like a personal thing? Like Philip kind of taking out vengeance on the place that had kept him captive? Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. And it's hard to say with, royal hostages because sometimes they full-on went native you know would end up loving that group other times they'd you know take all the lessons and go up and smash they come back and, and storm winterfell theon yes exactly uh that's i was still watching during that point so i actually know what you mean with philip it's hard to say one because we don't know too much of his personality we just kind of have to imagine based off of the choices he made. And I, he always, I, I imagine that even if he wasn't specifically like, I'm going to burn Thebes to the ground. He, I'm sure had a whole bunch of pleasure in going, ah, Hey, I used to live here at your mercy. And now everything about you is at my mercy. Isn't that fun? And from a tactical standpoint, you'd already said that like the sacred band was one of the better military organizations in Greece. So there was probably a lot of uh, of good reason to crush them. And, you know, if Alexander was just starting to lead campaigns or just starting to lead certain actions at this point, that would be a great way to prove himself. Be like, I took out the sacred band and they were number one before. Mm-hmm. This is before we really see how brilliant Alexander is, but this is worth noteworthy. He would have been a teenager at this time. Like, I, I realize adulthood happened a lot earlier in, you know, 300 B.C., than it does today but when i was in high school alexander was crushing one of the greatest military organizations that the greeks had ever seen up to that point it's impressive he's he's an impressive figure without doubt now real quick because we're talking about how much uh philip is after clearly getting ready to go after persia it is worth talking about where persia is at this point in its history persia in the in a lot of senses has been kind of in decline since roughly the end of the Greco-Persian Wars about 200 years before. Uh, Xerxes is considered kind of the last of the great great kings or the first of the not great kings depending on how you want to look at it. 
And we should really say that that doesn't mean there weren't great kings during this time, but up to this point, Persia had been expanding at a constant, steady rate for like three generations. It went from nowhere to a major empire, and within the next three generations conquered Babylon, conquered Egypt, conquered who knows how much, went deep into Afghanistan. It was just constantly growing. The Greek-Persian Wars happen, and some people say that it's kind of because of those wars that it starts to fall apart. Others say it just got as big as an, as an empire was kind of capable of being at that point. Um, there is a problem with empires. Once you reach a certain size, it becomes too big to really kind of control. How do you send troops from one side to the other if there's a, an imminent need? And Persia goes into what we would generally consider a state of slow decline over the next couple hundred years. It was probably a pretty good place to live at the time, but it was starting to look pretty rickety. A dark age compared to its former glory. Yes. The king, during the time that... Or the, the king, the king of kings, the, the ultimate ruler of Persia, was a man named Artaxerxes III during Philip's time. He actually was significantly older than Philip... And he had spent decades, just decades, doing everything he could to put Persia back together. He put down multiple insurrections. He reconquered Egypt, which was... Anyone who controlled Egypt, even though Egypt is long past its prime at this point, it just automatically, that was a good sign that you were a rich and powerful empire. Because Egypt brought in a lot of value to it. And it was in a great geological location. It was the gateway to Africa, at the time, which, of course, has always been resource-rich, you had access to two major bodies of water. Of course, you had the, the Red Sea on one side and the Mediterranean on the other, both of which feed into larger oceans. So it was uh, strategically, it was a very important place. Still is. And Artaxerxes spends, as I said, just decades putting this together, making Persia look, at least on a map, about as good as it's looked since shortly after the Greco-Persian Wars. Uh, it is... Probably internally rickety, but it is uh, big and, I don't know, sturdy, for lack of a better term. But somewhere in his, like, 80s, which also is just insanely old for that era. I mean, we talked about how bad the life expectancy was in Rome just because of diseases and all of these other things. This is the same problem. It is before the age of antibiotics. And sewers. People die early. Yeah. Being 80 is kind of like being Merlin at this point. Pretty darn impressive. And it seemed like the world at this point was kind of looking at this big match coming up between Philip and Artaxerxes III. But Artaxerxes III gets poisoned by one of his higher-ups and replaced with a kind of puppet king. Uh, he is killed in 338, and then just to throw another wrench in the works, in 336, Philip is also assassinated. A whole new uh, leadership over two of the... A whole new world coming up here. It's like the Disney song in a very dangerous, violent way. A whole new world, exciting wars for us to fight. Oh my god, they poisoned the king. <laughs> I don't have more lyrics for this. We just came with that off the top of our head. We're, we're, we're musical geniuses. Musical geniuses. We're very strange people here. I apologize. I don't, but anyways. Um, Phillips, at this point, like, at the age that he's assassinated, he is old, or, you know, 
old with quotation marks, scarred. He has been in combat forever. The Greeks refer to him as Philip the Barbarian, which kind of sounds like a Conan parody to me, but I also just really love that name. <laughs> he has a bum leg. like He's walking with a limp. His leg is mangled from some attack. I think only one eye is working at this point. He is the definition of like grizzled warrior. And as he's marching to what I believe is a wedding being set up, he is going through this part of the town. He is completely unarmored as a very, um, oh God, I'm blinking the word. Uh, he, he's making it look like the Greeks love him. And this was actually a, a decently common thing to do within the, the culture at the time. Uh, they reasoned that if you had to go about your own people with bodyguards, that you weren't a very good ruler. And so to kind of show that they had the approval of the population, a lot of these tyrants of the time would just kind of go out walking and be like, look, I'm safe. Everybody, everybody digs me. We're good here. And they would either not have bodyguards or they would not have armor or both. In this case, Philip is walking with... Uh, bodyguards, but without armor. See, I'm perfectly safe. This, of course, backfires when one of his bodyguards runs up and stabs him repeatedly. Yeah, that's... Yeah, you can't bodyguard from a bodyguard. Quickly backfires. There's kind of an E2 Brute situation going on here. The bodyguard tries to escape and is quickly murdered, and we have been trying to figure out why he killed Philip ever since. The real answer is we don't know. Uh, several people at the time and shortly after tried to place blame on Olympias and Alexander because in some ways Alexander won because suddenly he's in charge of this amazing empire right. or this ma amazing army. He did benefit for sure. And a generation later, a writer's like, oh yeah, Olympias laid like emotional remembrances on the assassin's grave, like really playing up. Oh, she hated her husband. Totally had him. Killed. And again, how much of this was just people trying to vilify her in history uh, we don't know. Modern scholars think it's pretty unlikely, but it's hard to say. Um, another theory is that it was a jealous lover. One of the fun things about Philip is he was openly bisexual. He he did not care. He just wanted to sleep with some folks. And it is thought that the assassin might have been a young lover that was either jilted. There's another story of... Uh, Philip left one lover for this younger lover and things went bad between like the ex-lover and the the new lover and both ended up angry at Philip and the new lover is the guy that kills him. Sorry, that was kind of a convoluted <laughs> sentence, but it's a very convoluted... It is so hard to talk about Macedonian politics because a lot of people have the same names and they all want to stab each other. It's like trying to talk about the English royalty in certain periods of history. You're like, okay, which, which Henry are we talking about now? And they will kill each other at the drop of a hat. Hey, you got a kingdom. Much like the English royalty, most of them were sleeping with each other. Yeah, makes for good, makes for good television, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Oh, it's excellent. Um, but just because that it means that we do not actually really know why Philip was assassinated, just that it was a shockwave that it happened. Philip is laid to rest at, I'm going to guess here, Aigai? That would be my best guess. It is spelled A-I-G-A-I. And what's fun about this is we know specifically where his tomb is. It was found in 1977. Which is neat. A lot of these historical figures, like we don't, it's hard to find actual, real, physical evidence 
of them, like of the person. But like, yeah, we've we've got Philip. We, I mean, we don't know where Alexander is. Like, even the generation after Alexander's death, people were competing over who like kept his body, and it was lost somewhere during that time. Um, but we have Philip, and it had to be fun because they're like, oh, we have a rough idea of when this came from. Oh my God! Look at that dude's leg. Like that guy clearly had a bum. Oh my God! This we think this is Philip the Barbarian, Philip the Great of Macedonia. It is a really fascinating bit of archaeological history. I imagine it would have been incredible to be a an archaeologist or a historian on the ground to to be part of that. I imagine it's got to be something like King Tut's tomb or Herod's tomb. Like when they found Herod's tomb more recently, that was a, a huge deal for the scholarly community. Almost more like Herod because King Tut was remarkable because he was one of the few tombs that hadn't been broken into. But historically, Tutankhamun is not that important as a pharaoh. Philip is super important as a king of Macedon. Yeah. And as a Greek, um, for all the reasons we've just discussed. But this does have a moment of, like, what is going to happen now? Because there's this very big buildup, and, you know, the, there's a reason cut off the head of a snake is a truism. Mm-hmm. What, for whatever reason it happened, it's possible that the head of the snake was just cut off here pretty much the entire League of Corinth tries to dissolve at this point. They're like, yep, we're all working together to take on Greece. Oh, he's dead? Okay, cool. We're going to take off. And uh, Alexander, who has taken over here, has to be utterly ruthless in his putting, uh, in his suppression of revolts going on here, to the point that he burns Thebes to the ground. Like, before, he had smashed their army and made them submit. Now he just destroyed them. This is a theme with Alexander. This is not the first city he will burn to the ground. Or the last. Well, it's not the last one he'll burn to the ground. This either. is not the last city. That's what I meant to say. It's probably the first city he burned to the ground. Good chance, at least. Uh, but he was a bit of an arsonist, if we're going to be really honest here. Part of the reason, real quick, why they thought Alexander might have been the guy to do this is Alexander wasn't originally going to go on the mission into Persia. He was going to serve as regent of Greece while his dad, Philip, was taking over everything. And then suddenly he's the head of the greatest army daddy's money could buy. And if this sounds familiar, remember that Frederick the Great also inherited a fantastic army from his father and used it to great avail. So, And, I, and no doubt he was probably inspired by this earlier example. Oh, yeah. I, it's one thing I really love to point out. If Alexander didn't build this army, as we have now seen which always blows people away when we talk about it. We're like, oh, I, I think people automatically assume that Alexander's kind of like Genghis Khan, who just... Built something from scratch. Yeah, because we look at these armies that came out of nowhere, uh, Achaemenid Persia itself, the Mongols, the Macedonians, and we're like, man, that person who led them was amazing. And Alexander was amazing, but he also was really, really lucky with like where he was set up to do this. Yeah, talk talk about a heck of a graduation present there. Yeah. In, and then this leads us to 334 BC, which is two years after the death of Philip. Alexander is ready for his battle against Persia, and he crosses the Hellespont. The Hellespont being the body of water between Greece and the mainland. Basically, the body of water in between uh, Europe and Asia, if we're being honest. According to story... 
And again, this is one of those that I have no idea if it's true, but I really like it. When Alexander is on the bow of his ship as it is approaching, he picks up a spear and he chucks it. And it lands on the beach of Asia, and he accepts all of Asia through right of conquest and thanks the gods for their gift to him. A little presumptuous, but again, this guy has been told he's descended from divinity, so I suppose presumptuous would be within the... uh... Uh, the the context of his mind. Oh, absolutely presumptuous. And uh, that's actually where we are going to leave it, because this is where the story usually begins. He has crossed the Hellespont, and he is off to begin what to this day remains one of the most impressive military moments in all of history. Just a, a, a truly Herculean campaign. Yeah, I see what you did. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> but no, so so I hope that uh, with this with this uh, background here that Thumbs is excellently provided, uh, that we've given a little bit more shape, a little bit more character to the figure of Alexander and and kind of the period in history in which he existed. Yeah, uh, thanks for letting me do this. This is one of those bits of history that I first heard about, and I'm actually going to real quick. Uh, I first heard about this on a podcast called Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, and I got so into it because of that podcast that I just can't resist name-dropping it here. Um, My wife hates it, so, you know, you might like it, you might not. Either way, it's fine. But uh, if you are interested, you can check out that. And if you are looking for more Art of War gaming, we do have an Instagram and a Facebook where you can come check us out. Again, it's it's winter. It's been kind of hard to come up with things for the memes, but I am posting occasionally on there, and I promise to get better about it. You can always email me directly, which is pretty effective, at artofwargamingpodcast.com, or at, at gmail.com. Um, and that's, that's where we kind of run the official stuff from here. So if you've got a player profile that you'd like to submit or questions, comments, concerns, yeah, feel free to email us there. Uh, you can also listen to our sister shows on the Earworm network. Yeah. You can listen to, uh, fried squirms or general nerdery with me and my buddy Tyler. And there are actually more shows launching. I believe two shows launching within the next month that I will start talking about as soon as they're actually on the air. Right on, right on. Well, I think we're good for, for this episode. What do you think, Thumbs? I think we'll see you next... No, not next week. We won't see you next week. We'll see you in two weeks. All right. Uh, this is Yaga Malark. And I'm Thumbs. Signing off. <laughs>